Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with a focus on the Rolling Thunder Convoy in Ottawa this past weekend. That and more with Dr. Laura Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Ontario's political leaders are kicking off their campaigns. What promises and commitments are they making? Well, we'll talk about that. And civilians evacuated from Mariupol as Nancy Pelosi visits Ukraine. Reggie Cicchini is going to join us and talk about all this. He, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in Washington. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, Rolling Thunder protest did occur this weekend, as anticipated. There was a great concern about what might happen, of course, because we still have the memories of that February occupation of Ottawa very much in our minds. And if you watched any of the coverage, you, there are a couple of things that, that we need to focus on here. There are a number of people that identified themselves as Canadian veterans who were speaking to the clubs and the rallies and some of the other things that were going on there this past weekend. Uh, one particular time, though, a crowd of about 100 protesters uh, carrying Canadian flags and heart-shaped helium balloons gathered at the National War Memorial on Saturday, uh, while a dozen counter-protesters or so uh, were on the other side of the street shouting at them to go home. And this is the point we were making. Not everybody who was ex-military is a, is a member of this group that are protesting about what's going on. Canadian Armed Forces veteran Chris Anderson, who lives in Ottawa, turned out for the counter-protest, and, well, he had some pretty harsh comments to make. I find that these people don't have a, a message they can tell people, so they yell freedom, but the things they actually want, they seem to keep to themselves, and I think that's because most Canadians would find them absolutely abhorrent if they heard what they actually thought. So I, I think their days are numbered. And I, I'm hoping we can have a quiet summer and these weirdos just go home. Uh, that's one opinion of uh, an ex-military uh, member uh, who does not like what was going on there. Let's start there when we talk about uh, politics in the Canadian scene, which is uh, starting to heat up, especially uh, with the uh, Conservative leadership. And to uh, talk about all these things, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. I hope you had a good weekend, a quiet weekend, I hope. Hi, Bill. I did. I had a pretty quiet weekend. Yeah, I hope you did too. A lot of concern, of course, this past week about what was going to happen with the uh, the, the the rolling thunder motorcycles uh, that were rowing into Ottawa right now. I'm not going to say it was much to do about nothing because there was still some concern and there were some arrests made and things got a little tense a couple of times. But I got the, the, the sense anyway from the coverage I watched, Laurie, that uh, Ottawa police did, I thought, an outstanding job of controlling where this was going to go and just uh, and keeping the temperature down, I guess, in the downtown core. Absolutely. Uh, it was completely different from what we saw happen in January and February. And even like, you know, I guess it was like the early part of last week, we started to hear that there were plans for people to come to Ottawa. And by Thursday of last week, I think it was, um, Mayor Jim Watson gave a press conference and the police were speaking to the issue. So it was clear from the outset that there was a set of sense of readiness on the part of the police. And so there was, you know, there were actions taken from the outset. There were, you know, spaces blocked off and things like that. As you say, there were arrests made. There was, there was a sense that the law was being enforced. And so I think, yeah, I mean, I think everybody was understandably concerned that this is somehow going to spiral out of control, but it didn't. I guess one of the things that bothered me as I was watching the coverage over the weekend, uh, and, and the, the Army veteran we just talked to, Mr. Anderson, uh, talked about this as well, uh, the number of protesters, I mean, carrying Canadian flags, I guess, you know, they, they feel they're patriots and that's fine, but yelling freedom. And I'm thinking, what, what freedoms are you looking for that you don't already have? You have the freedom to, to protest. You're doing that now. You have the freedom to make choices here. And especially when you compare what, these people think is, is such a, a, a onerous circumstance here in Canada to what we see on a daily basis in Ukraine, what's going on in Moscow these days, uh, and, and in China. Um, you know, it, I, I'm wondering, as, as that uh, former veteran mentioned here, you know, this whole thing about freedom, and, and we heard that, of course, uh, you know, during the January 6, 2020 things in Washington as well. I, I think a lot of people are scratching their heads and saying, just what do you mean by that? What's, what's your point? What's your concern here? Oh, exactly. I think even back in January and February, right, when the Freedom Convoy came to town and their point, you know, ostensibly, at least at first, was all about we want an end to COVID-19 restrictions. We want an end to the mask mandate, to vaccine cert uh, certificates. That's how it all started, right, was this sort of opposition to truckers needing to show proof of vaccine to be able to go across the border. And so then it kind of picked up steam and turned into this um, movement that was against 
all kinds of government regulation and what some people saw as intrusion with respect to COVID-19. But even at that time, a lot of the restrictions and mandates and things were either being phased out or about to be phased out. And governments actually said that. And And here they are, you know, kind of protesting the federal government when in fact most of these things are up to the provincial governments and so there was sensibility issues here from day one but now as you say yeah i mean what what are you talking about what why are you jumping around saying freedom but it's an interesting political um you know rallying cry like it's something it's it's a word that doesn't necessarily mean any specific thing it can mean all different things to different people. And so if it's something that's that you identify with on the ideological spectrum, it can be very politically useful to people. And I think, you know, if we want to just make a little link to uh, the conservative leadership race, Pierre Polyev is picking up that vibe, right? And he he, well, he's using harness, that exact phrase, isn't he? 100%. Like he he wants to, to harness that energy and channel that energy of people who want Canada to become a freer country. And that's what he says, you know, and he's trying to pick up on this anti-Trudeau uh, momentum as well, right? And so I think we're seeing some, uh, you know, semantic sleight of hand here around what freedom really means. And as you say, my goodness, right, when we can see what's happening in other parts of the world, why anybody would think that Canada needs to be made a freer country in that context is just kind of ridiculous. But here we are. Well, you know what it reminds me of is, that, you know, the Jeff Daniels character in the, the Aaron Sorkin TV show from a few years ago called Newsroom. And he's in the auditorium with a bunch of uh, college students. And, uh, you know, and he starts berating one of the, one of the students is asking a question, is freedom? You know, they're saying the best thing about America is they have freedom. He says, Canada has freedom. Britain has freedom. And he goes and listed about 15 different countries. It's, it's how you use it. And, you know, we've got a pretty good situation here when you look at what's going on in the world these days. It's, I'm, I'm getting the sense from the, the comments some of these people are making that are doing these protests, uh, whether it's at the, the Ambassador Bridge or whether it's in downtown Ottawa, uh, what they want is freedom from responsibility. I mean, they, they want to make choices and, and without any consequences. Well, I got news for you. Life's not like that. Well, that's it. I mean, a lot of the things that government asked us to do during COVID-19 were because we all needed to do it or else it wouldn't work, right? It was about that responsibility to your neighbor, to your community, to the country, that if we're going to manage the public health side of COVID-19, we all need to mask up. We all need to get vaccinated. Vaccinated, like this is this is just what's required of all of us. And so, government is in a position to, you know, kind of make that collective action happen. And so, I think you're right when you're talking about freedom. It's sort of like a well, we don't want to be in this together anymore. We want to live for ourselves. If we don't want to get vaccines, we just won't. If we don't want to wear masks, we won't. Even though some people could be hurt, which you know is not a responsible way to live. I'm sorry. I know masks suck, but like it come on, like we have to, we have to do what we need to do to make sure we're not in another lockdown situation. And so people who are vulnerable don't get hurt by this, even though, you know, some people might be fine and, you know, get COVID no problem. Other people aren't right. So this is a real, like the government has asked us, all governments have asked us to dig in on, you know, on each other's behalf in a certain way. But I also think, I think you're absolutely right. And I also think that some of this freedom is about like the, the quest for freedom is about freedom from government. And well, exactly. And space in your life. It, well, exactly. And, and and this is part of a bigger movement that you and I have talked about in the past. It's, it's not just here. It's in North America. Uh, certainly there's an element of it in the United States as well. You know, we don't like the government. Yeah, there was an election, but we don't believe in the results. So we want to change the government. And we've heard that in February in Ottawa. And there were a few people that were on that same theme, of course, this past weekend there with the the, the Rolling Thunder thing is, you know, get rid of the government. Well, you, sorry, this is a democracy. That's not the way things work. It's not who yells the loudest or who doesn't like it. I mean, as long as we've been a, a country since 1867, there's always going to be an element of this population that doesn't like the government that got elected. Well, that, then, you know, do something about it, but it doesn't mean overthrowing it. Well, that's it. Like, I mean, and I think you're you're getting to a really critical issue that we're seeing a lot more of now and it's frightening and i mean you it doesn't take long to do a, a search of the news in the u.s and you can find examples of people again taking issue with the results of an election you know trying to make efforts to actually distort the results of an election people working on certain candidates behalf to try to see what they can do to you know n- not have everything counted you know and, and go back to the ballot you know the ballot box and all the rest of it like there we've got problems really are when people start to question the legitimate results of an election, because that means you're not accepting the rules of the game, right? Like democracy means you accept it. 
you accept the outcome because it's legitimate, not because it's the person you want, but because we all said, okay, these are the rules and everybody wins and loses sometimes. But now we're seeing a kind of breakdown, I think, of the consensus around those institutions. And so people think they can break the rules. And even like I'm having flashbacks to the, the trucker convoy in February when people were saying, you know, when a cop comes up to me, he's just another person. Oh my God, right? Like, no, that's this is the law. Like, so I think it's it's a dangerous thing to be hurtling toward, you know, freedom at all costs and a freedom from government and freedom from restrictions, because that's going to have significant implications. That's not just a political campaign, right? Like that's that's serious. A couple of things, and I don't want to spend the whole time on on this one subject, but we do, I guess, need to put this in perspective. And watching this stuff over the weekend kind of reminded me of that. You know, because we saw these people and we saw the rallies as the truckers were making their hordes out of. There was one in Ottawa and, you know, as they drove through Hamilton here, of course, they, you know, some people cheering by the side of the highway. Over 85% of the people in this country got vaccinated. And over 95% of the trucking industry got vaccinated. So this is a very, very small subset, a vocal, but very small subset that's making a fuss about this. And we got to remember that. I mean, you know, you can get two or 3,000 people there, but, you know, we're, we're 35 million people in this country. So let's put everything in perspective. And, and I think that's what we have to m- remind ourselves of. Uh, I got You mentioned Polyev, of course, because he seems to be jumping onto this, too. But there were two different polls that were done last week that seemed to indicate that if he continues along this way with this freedom thing and, you know, all this other stuff that he's talking about, uh, he probably will win the leadership. I mean, you know, you still have to count the votes. Uh, But they say he can't grow. In other words, the Conservatives may elect him, but the Canadian public doesn't seem to warm up to this guy. Is that a message that's being received by by the Conservatives as they move towards their leadership race? I mean, I think there's a lot of people pointing it out, right? And I'm sure Polyev's team is is more than aware of, you know, they don't want him to fall into this sort of, you know, pox that seems to be on the front runner in the past couple of leadership races for the Conservatives, that if you come first, you know, you come first on the first ballot and then you run at a gas kind of while other people collect the second and third preferences, you know, of, of voters and then the consensus ends up building around somebody else. I think it's certainly possible that he will win, but I don't think it's very likely that he's going to win on the first ballot. And so he'll shift his strategy around trying to appeal to the second and third preferences of other people's supporters, right? And so, you know, a few people have pointed out, you know, he really needs to make friends with Leslie Lewis if he does, hasn't done that already and indicate to her supporters that, look, you know, she would be part of a poly of government, that kind of thing. But to get straight to your question, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see how, where this party lands when their leadership is over, because I think no matter who wins it, whether it's Polly or Sheree or Brown or whatever, the person is not going to be able to pull together all the different factions of the party and say, okay, we're going to unite now. Like, I just don't see that happening because when you hear Polyev and you hear Sheree, they are in two different worlds. Like they are talking about totally different things. Of course, it's weird when Polyev runs against government when he's trying to be the government. I think eventually, if he he ever becomes prime minister, he's going to have to deal with that. But I just don't see how this party is going to be able to put all the factions back together. So it's possible that, you know, if he if he wins the leadership and the party shifts to the right, he's really building a different kind of alliance. Like he's building a different kind of coalition for the party, which would mean if he was, you know, that that will affect how competitive he is in terms of actually running to be prime minister, as he says. Just got a little more than a minute and a half left. But I do do want to ask you about uh, Ukraine and Canada's role here. You know, our government's been criticized by all circles, some NATO members, as a matter of fact, about our military uh, contribution. Uh, I mean, we've tried to, I think, and and probably we're punching above our weight when it comes to humanitarian efforts. Uh, But now the latest seems to be, well, where are the leaders here? Nancy Pelosi, of course, is, is over there right now. Uh, we've sent, uh, well, we, the foreign affairs minister has been there. The defense minister has been in Poland anyway. Uh, has there any talk at all? Because there's already been some criticism about, well, for instance, the prime minister uh, visiting. He, you know, he talks about how he and Zelensky are such good friends. They've known each other for quite some time now. Uh, why not a visit? Why not something there to, to bolster the, the Ukraine people to say, yeah, we've got your back here and we support you? Well, that's it, right? Because we can see, again, you know, other leaders doing that and, we know that Canada is not going to be bringing it in a huge way on the military side, right? We are not the U.S. We are not that kind of power. And so in terms of how we can can contribute, there are other ways, you know, in terms of sending aid, in terms of being a safe space for refugees who need to go somewhere else. We can do all that. But a big part of, of our contribution absolutely is that 
you know, we, we are devoted to this, we are with you. And a big way of showing that that is authentic would be to show up, to look this in the face, you know, to, to actually witness and be there and understand and not look away from the atrocities that are happening, especially now that we're so far into this. And so I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Canada to show up like physically and in person very soon. Uh, and I know some people are going to say, well, it's just a photo op. Well, sometimes a photo op is necessary for morale purposes. And, and you know, I, I'm just, I know that there's some criticism circling around uh, argument about that right now. And they, they need to, I think, address that. Anyway, uh, that's it for today. I wish we had another hour and a half to talk about stuff, Laura. There's so much going on Thank right you. now. But always you. appreciate your time. Have a great week. And we'll talk again soon, okay? Great. Sounds good. You too. You too. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario's election campaign has all but begun now that the uh, progressive conservative government has adjourned the legislature after they tabled their budget just a couple of days, of course. Steve Henniger has some details. The Tory spring budget will serve as their platform for the campaign that is expected to kick off next week. The record $198.6 billion fiscal plan features big spending on infrastructure like highways and hospitals. The NDP platform, meantime, focuses on affordability and health system measures like a tax freeze for low- and middle-income earners, mental health coverage, and quicker access to pharmacare. The Liberals are promising to raise the minimum wage and end for-profit long-term care. June 2nd is the expected voting day. Steve Hanniger, the Canadian Press, Toronto. I mean, in fact, I mean, the election campaign started some time ago when they started making these promises. And uh, the Premier, of course, with some of the big announcements about where they were going to spend money building highways, yada, yada, yada. But where do we stand now? This is a pretty important election for the province, uh, considering what we've come through in the last couple of years. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Wayne Petrosi. Uh, Wayne is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at uh, Ryerson University. Uh, Professor, pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. I am, thank you. Let me ask you about, first of all, just step back a little bit about the budget that was announced by uh, Finance Minister Bethlen Falvey last week. It's, we knew this was going to essentially be the uh, progressive conservative platform. Uh, the comments I've heard from an awful lot of the folks I've talked to, Wayne, is suggesting, boy, they're spending a lot more money than we thought a, a, a conservative, small-c conservative government would spend, but that seems to be the theme. Yeah, it, 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 it most certainly is. And, you know, their, their willingness to do a 360-degree turn is, in one sense, not a surprise. This whole campaign and the last six months, you've been watching a government run as fast as it can away from its first three and a half years in office. <laughs> Understandably so, when you look at some of the policies that they attempted to carry and some of the pushback they got on this. I mean, analytically, I mean, when when they did come to power in the last election, they did it essentially at the expense of, of the, the Liberal Party that almost got wiped out, of course. Uh, I get the sense that what they're trying to do with this budget, what they've tried to do with some of these announcements they've made, are, uh, is is make sure that those people that they, they did get voting uh, from last time don't drift back to the Liberal Party. Well, you know, they most certainly are, and uh, they they should be concerned about that. I mean, many of the moves they've made in the last few months you know, you, you, you have to concede, uh, are likely to please and, and possibly attract those voters back to them a second time. But as I said, the main focus here really is to in, induce a, 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 a kind of collective amnesia on, 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 the, on their initial years. If you recall, and it, it's, it seems like four years is a long time, uh, the first two years of energy of that government were taken up by either gimmicks, like dollar beer, uh, or we can make license plates better and look good and also share our party colors. And subsequent to that, uh, or along with that, was this kind of, the world is coming in on us, we've, we've spent too much, we've got to cut back. And in fact, you know, people should be, remember, they did cut back over a billion dollars out of the health and education fields. All of that was a prelude to a mishandling of, of, a, of a pandemic that is, you know, remarkable in not the fact that they mishandled it, but in the durability of their mishandling. They continued to mishandle it until, thank God, it's time for an election. Let's get people to forget about it. Oh, by the way, people also do want to forget about it. So let's be the good news, express people who are bringing you all this money that eh, we got from the feds. 
Well, and, and I know you've talked about uh, in the past with us about, uh, as you mentioned, so their energy or policies or lack of, I suppose it was. I mean, you know, he spent an awful lot of time and millions of dollars uh, fighting the carbon tax of the federal government. I mean, you know, he, uh, first of all, he canceled the, the wind government's uh, cap and trade. Then he went to court twice and lost both times. But now he just wants, as you say, he's turned the page. He doesn't want people to think about that. He doesn't want to talk about that. He's He's the electric vehicle guy now. Oh yeah, most certainly. Uh, he's going to, you know, bring bring uh, prosperity back to the whole province, and and I'm doing that because I'm also hoping you'll you'll forget my my earlier promises to put an iron ring around long-term care homes uh, after wave one, and the result was three times more people died in wave two in long-term care homes than in wave one. Uh, all of this is it's aptly named an express bus. They need to get out of town fast and get you focused on something else. And of course, there are two other parties here, the NDP, who are the official opposition right now, simply by numbers. And Idavir Horvath kicked off her campaign in Hamilton over the weekend, too, talking about they be the only government that could overtake the, the conservatives, that, since they are the official opposition right now. But I mean, I don't see any surprises in the NDP platform and promises so far. It seems very typical of, of the ideology that, that that party has been clinging to for a number of years right now. But is it is it 21st century ideology? Well, you know, the thing is, both parties have the same dilemma. Truth is, a number of the initiatives announced by the conservative government, promised, I should say, they are not uncomfortable with. They would go further, perhaps, the, the, the uh, tax breaks for, for low-income working people. And in other areas, they, they might go further, but they're big on transit and investment and public transit. So they're, what they need to do, if uh, all of those opposition parties, is just as the Ford government's trying to run as fast as it can away from the last four years, those opposition parties had better, do, to the best of their ability, drag them back into those years and make them account and hold them responsible. That's, if they don't do that, this election will be over. You'll have a conservative majority government. So where do the liberals fit in then? I mean, in, in, historically, uh, you're right, they've kind of borrowed a little bit from that part, a little bit from the right, a little bit from the left. Uh, they've embraced some of the, the transportation things in the past, and it worked pretty effectively for a time. Uh, Ontario voters got pretty tired of it, I guess, over a number of years and, uh, and tossed them out in the last election. But you've got a relatively new leader that not a whole lot of people know in Stephen Del Duca. And I guess to a certain extent, Wayne, they've got an identity crisis. Just who are the Ontario Liberals these days? That they certainly do. And they're going to have to make sure they don't spend the whole campaign playing defense from conservative charges that the Liberals are basically, you, can't, you don't know who they are and what they stand for. Uh, they're going to have to go back, in a sense, to, to some of their old virtues, their old policy chestnuts, and that's around public investment in a long-term care center that is publicly owned, public investment in hospitals, more government investment in education. They're going to have to go back to the things that they used in the past to distinguish themselves and deliver themselves into governing status. It's it's going to be interesting about finances and about you know, those those sorts of financial ideologies. In past elections, of course, the, the the Ontario PCs have always focused on balancing the budget. You know, no wasteful spending, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I get the sense that's not going to come up very much in this one. I and mean, they're all talking about spending an awful lot of money. Uh, and I'm not getting a whole lot of pushback. People are kind of expecting that, even from the Ford government now. No, I, I think you're right. Uh, I don't think any any of the parties uh, this time around are going to argue about putting their uh, their foot on the pedal and, and breaking uh, government spending. Now, in, par- in part, that's a consequence of actually of the pandemic, its aftermath. And the truth is, uh, the recovery has been more pronounced than the doom and gloomers were saying. So there's much more revenue flowing into the coffers. The truth is also, money was not spent that was transferred from the federal government to the provincial government. Mr. Ford wasn't alone among premiers in hoarding some of that cash, but he, he was among the more egregious and, and with terrible consequences. So there, there's money to be had. It's sitting there in the accounts, uh, and I think both opposition parties, all three opposition parties, I'm sorry, are prepared to spend that money and believe that they should spend that money. 
when you come into a situation like that, I mean, we've kind of talked around this, but let's let's talk about the pandemic. You know, the, some of the lowest ratings that we've seen in any premier in, in recent history, of course, were Doug Ford's uh, approval ratings by Ontario voters uh, in the first couple of years, a year and a half especially of the pandemic. As we seem to be coming out of it now, his numbers have started to go up. Uh, does that mean we've forgotten about all the things that bothered us a couple of years ago, or is it incumbent upon the, the Greens, the NDP, and the Liberals to remind us of just how bad things got? Well, in the first instance, it's Mr. Ford is tapping into something that uh, I think is true about a lot of us. We're all tired and fatigued and overstressed by what we've had to endure in the last two years. So, yes, we would very much like to get that in the rearview mirror. But what the opposition parties have to do is say, yes, we need to look ahead. But second, we must hold people accountable for what they did and didn't do during those terrible times. And I don't mean to drag you back into the past. I'm asking you to, along with us, hold them responsible. And and that's going to be a tough uh, needle to be threaded for the opposition parties because we do want to simply, oh, God, I'm tired of it all. Let's move on, please. And that's what Ford's tapping into, counting on, and that express bus is going to take you as fast as it can away from that. It's it's interesting because uh, I guess it's kind of a double-edged sword when you're an incumbent government, isn't it? Uh, you know, the good news is that, yeah, you have uh, you control the kitty, uh, so you want to throw money around, you want to make promises, you can do that. Uh, the other thing is you've got a record uh, that you have to, uh, you know, uh, you, you've, you've got to be accountable for that. And and you're right. I think I think I'm getting the sense from what, what the premier has done over the last six or eight weeks, especially, is he wants us to remember the government from uh, starting in January of this year and forget those other three years that he was in power because it didn't work so well for him. I I know that traditionally they usually say voters have pretty short memories. Do they, or are they going to remember some of this stuff? You know, if they if they had you know family members in long term care facilities, if uh, you know their parents and they're tired about the way this government handled the, the COVID vaccine program and and the you know the the closing schools, shutting businesses down, things like that. Uh, that's got to be fresh in some people's minds, I would think. You know, certainly, and that's going to be the, the real test of the campaign for all parties. One side's going to want to push so that you just don't give that much attention anymore, and you're happy to sunny days are here. The, uh, the opposition parties are going to have to convincingly make the case that, listen, bad things happened, and we can't just pretend they didn't happen, forget they, they happened at all, we have to hold them accountable. That's going to be their, their test. And you're right, there are lots of people out there who aren't going to be as so forgiving. People who lost fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, grandmas, grandpas, nurses who got burned out, people who just got sick and found themselves in hospital for a long periods of time. There, there's quite a, quite a body count that built up in those, in those first three years. And it's going to be a contest between which side's able to remind or get you to forget what actually happened. Is there going to be a, a key issue here, Wayne, that, that people are going to gravitate to? Uh, you know, I, I guess we were anticipating about a year ago that this was going to be the pandemic election. I, I'm not so sure that's going to be the, the issue that people are going to be talking about. Uh, but to your point, I mean, the numbers indicate, you know, that economically we're not doing too badly right now. You know, employment numbers are up, but, but inflation is killing us. Does this government wear that, or did they? Or, I mean, he's traditionally, you know, shoved that back to Ottawa and said that's the federal government's fault, not mine. Are we buying that argument? I think we want to buy the argument, and that's why I, I think he will do everything he can. Uh, certainly on the campaign trail, you will never hear a mention of the first three years. Uh, the question is, is whether or not in either public settings where it's subjected to questioning or in, say, formats like a debate, the opposition parties can pull him back to this place where he has to explain and account for what happened those first three years. And even from an economic standpoint, I mean, you know, we have a, this, uh, this, uh, I guess, propensity in Ontario that if we have a, a liberal government in Ottawa, uh, we tend to want a conservative government here and vice versa. Uh, does that stick through? It just seems to be a mindset. I don't know if it's a matter of accountability or what. Uh, 
but the, uh, the the relationship between Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau has been, uh, shall we say, acrimonious. I mean, there have been times where they seem to be cooperating and working quite well together. Uh, but when the heat gets turned up, and it's up right now on, on the Ford government, of course, with an election coming, uh, then all of a sudden they, they start focusing on Ottawa and say, look, at the things that are wrong with your life right now is their fault. The things that are good with your life is because of us. I suspect, actually, he'll keep that pretty toned down for the simple reason is he doesn't want to provide an opening for people to go back and remember. I think it's going to be a good news campaign wherever and whenever they can make it about good news. I mean, this idea of the Yes Express, say yes to this, say yes to that, we're giving more money here, we're building another plant there, we're investing here, uh, we're partnering with the, with the federal government. He thinks people, and he's correct, I think people don't like uh, levels of government uh, disputing just for the sake of disputing. So I, I think it'll be a very upbeat, positive-oriented campaign, future-oriented campaign, and they're going to hope that no one drags them back into the, the present or the past. Uh, are we going to get into, I mean, I remember you brought the point up of a buck of beer, uh, which was hardly a key issue in the Ontario election four years ago, but Ford tried to make it. It's, it's all about slogans. Uh, it seems as Mr. Del Duca seems to be falling into that trap as well with the the buck a ride now, a dollar ride for uh, for transit riders. Uh, is that realistic, and is that something that the urban voters are going to say, "Yeah, that's that's our guy" because that's our that's our policy? You know, certainly it will op- it will it, it will have appeal in in the GTHA. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that because, of, well, truth is, most transit users in the province of Ontario reside in the GTHA, so mm-hmm. that will certainly resonate. Uh, and but you know, truth is, if the parties keep throwing themselves into every corner of policy and promising this and promising that, they're going to find the same issue. They're going to find, even if they're successful, they're going to find they're going to have the same problems as a government, a, a newly elected government that's unfocused, that can't seem to make up its mind, and that really spends way too much of its mandate trying to figure out what it really wants to do, like Mr. Ford did. You know, we look at the numbers right now, and as we mentioned at the top of our conversation here, the Conservatives have a, a lead. Uh, they're in majority territory right now. Uh, how many voters in this province, on a percentage-wise, I'm just asking it a crystal ball a little bit here, are undecided and don't really know where they want to go yet? You know, we have uh, uh, historically, we currently have a, a party system in which uh, less than half of eligible voters identify with any of the political parties. And what that means, in effect, is virtually every election is up in the air. Anyone can, nearly anyone can win. Uh, over half of Ontario's voters do not consider themselves to be liberal, new Democrat, or conservative, thank you very much. They are willing to move their vote. Uh, the data tells us they do move their vote with great frequency. So a very small proportion, for example, of voters can tell you that they voted for the same party for the last 10 years. That's a minority of the overall population. Majority of voters switch. And that's why campaigns have become so important and positioning leading up to the campaigns by the governing side, even greater importance. Be interesting to see how this rolls out over the next little while. June 2nd, by the way, is voting day. Wayne, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Take care. That's uh, Professor Wayne Petrosi from uh, Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An interesting week in uh, in Washington. Uh, as we mentioned on the news earlier, uh, Nancy Pelosi, of course, House Leader Nancy Pelosi, is uh, over in Ukraine, uh, met with uh, President Zelensky and other leaders. And uh, there have been a number of, of course, American uh, VIPs over there, Anthony Blinken among others, over the last little while. And this amid the fact that it seems as if Russia is starting to move once again, uh, troop movements, especially in eastern Ukraine. So what is the Biden administration's uh, position on this and how are they going to handle the latest news from the front uh, in this ongoing battle against the Russians? I want to bring Reggie Cicchini into the conversation. Reggie, of course, is the uh, Washington correspondent for Global News. And always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Reggie. Thank you. What's uh, what's what's happening with the White House right now? Is they're watching what's happening with Russia? Uh, there was a time when they pulled back. I think the consensus now is that that was really just a regroup. They seem to be uh, attacking cities in, in much greater uh, force than they have in the past. Mariupol, of course, is front and center right now because there's a number of of, of citizens that want to get out of there. 
uh, and they seem to be boxed in by the Russians right now. I, I, I know the Biden administration was very concerned about that. Uh, are they going to be proactive on this, or are they just going to sit and watch for the time being? Yeah, I mean, look, the White House is still uh, incredibly concerned about the situation, uh, you know, in Mariupol, but across Ukraine uh, as a whole. But in Mariupol, where there are, according to the city's mayor, 20,000 residents who are, or citizens who have died over the last uh, six weeks, and there are still uh, at least 1,000, possibly more than 1,000, trapped inside that steel plant, uh, inside that maze of tunnels uh, that, you know, this plant is, is, is continuing to be besieged and bombarded uh, by uh, the Russians. This is problematic uh, for Ukraine. Ukraine, and it is of concern for Washington, which is why you're seeing the president and almost a majority of Congress uh, in the U.S. pushing for this uh, multi, you know, tens of billions of dollars in aid to give Ukraine, along with, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of lease loan program to give more weapons to the country. The U.S. is really kind of looking at this saying, look, we're six weeks in. Russia may be backing down. They may be regrouping. They may have, you know, uh, uh, problematic equipment, but they're not stopping so the U.S. and its allies are really doing what they can to keep Ukraine afloat. Is the attitude in, in Washington changing, especially vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the threats from Russia? Uh, initially, of course, as you said uh, six weeks ago when this whole thing started, uh, Putin pretty much drew a line in the sand and said, look, if you're going to supply arms to these guys or if you guys uh, are going to you know, basically back Ukraine, uh, there's going to be repercussions. Uh, the last time he did that, about a week or so ago, I got the sense from some of the, the folks in the White House uh, and I think Jan Psaki, the, uh, the White House of the Biden press secretary, mentioned this, too. They're kind of saying, go ahead, you know, knock yourself out. In other words, they were basically calling his bluff, uh, which could be construed, I guess, in some circles, Reggie, as confrontational. But you wonder, OK, what's what's the U.S. next move then? Are they going to be more proactive or are they going to, as uh, the president said, keep their feet in Poland and, and just supply arms and money as needed? I think that's exactly what they're going to do, and that's what the indications uh, are moving forward, that this is going to be a, a kind of monetary and equipment uh, assisting. There is going to be no uh, forward movement of the U.S. Uh, into Ukraine. Uh, and, and, you know, whether or not Russia sees that as confrontational, that's something that the Kremlin is ultimately going to have to be able to make a decision uh, on their own about. Uh, but when you have the White House and Congress actively putting together tens of billions of dollars in money, in weapons, in ongoing aid... At the same time, you have European leaders uh, actively looking at ways to try and take themselves off of uh, reliance uh, of Russian gas. This, you know, w whether or not the, the bluff is going to be called, uh, the West is working together to say that they are not going to back down. They are not going to let these constant threats that, that Russia is making, be it just with a continued attack or this threat uh, of any kind of, you know, nuclear use, it's not, it's not creating a shaky knee situation uh, in the West, and, and, and Western leaders are essentially hoping that that kind of sends the signal into the Kremlin uh, that if they intend to go at this for the long run, that they're going to meet a resistance not only from Ukraine, but from Western Wall. And, and that's done, as you've been mentioning over the last number of weeks with your reporting, uh, essentially on economic terms, uh, you know, the sanctions they put in place, etc., and, and some of the conversations about, well, you know, maybe excluding Russia from the G20. I know that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and, uh, and Deputy Prime Minister Freeland have talked about that. The latest version of that that I saw over the weekend, Reggie, was uh, the former head of the, the NATO forces basically says that, look, at part of the problem here is, is Russia's seat on the UN Security Council because they can veto just about anything that uh, other nations try to do. And he's saying uh, it's time for the UN to boot Russia out of the UN Security Council. Uh, that's a pretty tall order, given that they were one of the original members and, and given that veto at that time. Uh, I don't think he's speaking for the Biden administration when he says that, is he? Well, I mean, he is and he isn't. Uh, the United States uh, made it very clear uh, that they were going to be pro uh, the mission to try and remove Russia from the uh, Human Rights Council, which was a U.S.-led uh, movement. But but ultimately here, when you're, when you're having a conversation about trying to remove Russia from the Security Council, it is a nearly impossible move to do. Number one, like you mentioned, they hold a veto, so they can veto themselves. Uh, to, to, to allow them to stay. Number two, the only other way to have a country removed from the Security Council would be for this to go to a full vote at the United Nations uh, General Assembly, of which to get there, it would need to be passed by the Security Council. So ultimately, Russia is going to stand in the way of any of this conversation uh, to, to, to potentially have it removed from uh, the Security Council. 
Is this calling for some kind of reform? Yes, there are people around the world who are saying that the UN Charter needs to be reformed uh, in order for uh, the group as a whole to be able to better counter countries that are kind of going against or violating the UN Charter. Uh, but until any kind of reform happens, and as we know, the United Nations can sometimes move at a glacial pace, uh, nothing is going to happen. There is word, though, Bill, that for countries that on the, on the Security Council that start using their veto, each of these vetoes may be looked at under a brighter spotlight and ultimately wind up moving into a, a debate uh, with a final vote, which, again, would be a resolution. It's not going to make any kind of big impact, but it will put uh, you know, more of a spotlight on, on the use and the potential violations of a country like Russia. I, I, I see your point exactly here. It'd be a long and winding road, and, and as you say, almost an impossible thing because of the veto, at which they can basically uh, they, they can employ the veto uh, to make sure that they don't get booted off. But the, the, the Biden administration seems to be consistent, though, Reggie, in trying to encourage other nations, not just NATO nations, uh, to ramp up diplomatic pressure. Uh, on Russia because of what's been going on here right now. Uh, a week or so ago, uh, we had uh, Minister Freeland and, and the uh, Canadian contingent walk out of that G20 meeting that was being held uh, in New York, I guess it was, or in Washington, I'm sorry, as you've been reporting it. Those sorts of things. Uh, is, is the Biden administration uh, actively pursuing that, that tact right now to basically, I guess, publicly embarrass Russia? I mean, look, they are. Uh, the move that took place uh, in Washington was a bold move. Uh, it, it put Russia again in a position uh, of kind of speaking to no one uh, other than a potential domestic audience, and if anything, a domestic audience of one back uh, in Moscow. But to have, you know, G20 or G7 or, or NATO leaders standing aligned to try and say, look, we're going to push back on Russia is one thing. But there are a number of countries around the world who are not aligned with what the West is trying to do. When it comes to pushing this, this putting this pressure on uh, on Russia, and that's because there are geopolitical ties that keep some countries connected to Russia, whether it is for security reasons, whether it is for energy reasons, and that was apparent uh, during the vote to kick Russia off of the Human Rights Commission when we saw a number of countries either abstain from voting, fearful of getting tangled up into this mess, uh, or or simply just voting against it to stand in line with Russia, a country like North Korea, a country like uh, like Syria. But there are a growing number of African nations as well that are not being moved by these American calls to push back on Russia because they are so closely uh, tied both economically and strategically to Moscow that it's not in their best interest to get involved in this. So the U.S. is making these calls to, the, uh, to countries around the world to say, look, uh, another country's sovereign rights need to be respected. It's just a call that's not being answered because there is a fear and an understanding that if Russia can do this to one country, Russia could do this to another country. Uh, and that's uh, the story that was going out last week, of course, is that uh, they have larger plans. And I know President Zelensky has, has used that a number of times in the, in the last couple of speeches, uh, which is why other countries are responding in, in a, well, some people would say a surprising mode, uh, especially a couple of the Scandinavian countries that uh, have been remaining neutral, shall we say, in, in global conflicts uh, for generations now, are making noises like they want to join NATO. Is, is the U.S. going to be supportive of that? The U.S. will be supportive of that. So, too, uh, will Canada. The Prime Minister was asked about this uh, within the last couple of weeks about uh, Scandinavian countries potentially joining uh, joining the alliance. Uh, and both uh, the Prime Minister, the President, uh, senior leaders uh, in the Biden administration have said that this is a country's sovereign right to be able to do what they want when it comes to their own protection uh, and their own defense. Uh, and nobody will stand in the way. The only country that is trying to stand in the way is Russia. Finland is going to vote uh, on, on applying for NATO membership uh, in 10 days on May 12th. That is a red line for Russia. They do not want to have any more of this kind of Western threat or this provocative uh, you know, defense mission that has been put together any closer to its border than it already is. Ukraine joining NATO was a big deal for Russia. Uh, they have been insistent that the West steer clear of Ukraine. You now potentially have the West moving even closer to the border with Finland, uh, applying for its own NATO membership after years of trying to stay uh, neutral. So there is a sign here that the world is concerned over what Russia is doing, but there's also a sign that the world is willing to stand up to what Russia is doing. 
Uh, with Reggie Cicchini, of course, uh, Washington correspondent for Global News. Uh, and now, as uh, Monty Python says, Reggie, now for something completely different, uh, entertainment news. But, I mean, that was one of the big areas of, of, of attention, of course, on Saturday night. Uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner took place for the first time, I guess, in two years. And the first time in six years the president attended. Of course, Donald Trump uh, wanted no part of that when he was in office. Interestingly enough, there's always going to be some feedback to this. It's supposed to be a lighthearted moment. I I was kind of surprised when I tuned into CNN on Saturday. And they had a panel of about six people there. And they were talking about this like it was the president addressing the United Nations. It's it's a dinner, for God's sakes. And it's, you know, one-liners back and forth. Uh, they're talking about the implications, et cetera. But it's it's supposed to be a fun evening, but I've seen a number of editorial reactions to this saying it's wrong because, you know, the, those who cover the White House shouldn't be hobnobbing and rubbing shoulders with the people that work in the White House because, you know, that means that it's going to have an impact on the reporting. Now, that's, that's right in your wheelhouse right now. Uh, for members of the press like yourself that are doing that, do you see this as, as a, a non-confrontational thing or, or is there an ideological stand that, that White House correspondents uh, have to take when it comes to uh, accepting dinner invitations uh, of this magnitude? There are over 2,000 people there on Saturday. There were almost 3,000 people uh, at, the, at this event. And I mean, there are always thousands uh, of journalists there. There are always dozens upon dozens of, of A-listers and celebrities that are at these events. And this is a kind of event that over the last few years has become more glitz and glamour uh, than yeah. it once used to have. You know, it, it was important the fact that we had a president show up to this because former President Trump made no effort uh, solely because a lot of times this turns into a roast uh, and the sitting president uh, is, is in on the fun but, you know, is poked fun at and the former president's skin wasn't as thick as he liked it to, uh, to come across as. But, you know, on a, on a, on a very personal level, I'm, I'm against the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I think it, it shines a light on, on White House Correspondents' Uh, and D.C. correspondents in a way that shouldn't be. Sean, you know, we do this job because there's a story that needs to be told, not because we're supposed to be the story. That's just my own personal opinion on this. But the fact that this was held in the first place by thousands of journalists in the middle uh, of a pandemic that is still ongoing, all of them vaccinated but without a mask on, and then immediately going back out of the, the dinner to cover the story of COVID to say that large gatherings can oftentimes become the nexus of a, of a spread event, it, it was a very surreal scene, uh, and, and it was, you know, the, the attention was brought to that by the fact that, that Trevor Noah made a comment that Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was invited, didn't go because he said that there was too much of a risk uh, of getting sick. This, this was a strange event to take place, trying to bring back a sense of normalcy, while at the same time just kind of showcasing how editorially a little messed up Washington can be sometimes. Well, exactly. And you're right, Trevor Noah did make that point. I mean, in a lighthearted manner, but the, the message I think was, was received was, was, as you say, the same people that were there last on, on Saturday night looking resplendent in their gowns and tuxedos were the same ones that on Friday were reporting that the, 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 you know, the pandemic is not over yet and the numbers are getting to be troubling again. And Dr. Fauci uh, last week, of course, I think reminded them that, look, you can be triple vaxxed and, and have a negative test. That still doesn't mean you can still catch COVID. Uh, and there was concern, as as you guys were reporting, of this becoming a super spreader. The organizers didn't think it was going to happen, but I guess time will tell in the next week or so uh, whether or not that does happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and just a couple of weeks ago, there was another big DC event called the Gridiron, uh, which was yeah. you know a bipartisan attended higher up in the in the political world uh, event, and there were dozens upon dozens of cases at a much smaller uh, event. So there is a concern here. Some of the reporters that were covering this for. Uh, for the the Washington pool or for the reporters pool who were there were also concerned themselves saying look this this doesn't really make sense for us to all be kind of sitting in this room at a time when the US is actively watching its case numbers go up you had Dr. Burks uh, you know a prominent member during the Trump administration over the weekend on the Sunday shows saying that we are gearing up in the US for a summer surge in the south which often leads to a winter surge in the north so with a country that is you know on the brink of a million deaths from covid it just sends a bizarre kind of uh, note to the rest of the country when the news says, look, we're still in the middle of this, but the people who are telling you that, they're also in the middle of trying to be normal. 
It's interesting, though, to, to see the attitude on this. And, and as you say, there's always going to be an assessment uh, of the president's performance at these things. Uh, I mean, Barack Obama had that gift. I mean, he had a sense of humor. I mean, these are professional writers, of course, that provide the material for the, the president, as they, as they, and it is absolutely a roast. Uh, and Biden got mixed reviews. He's not a, the sort of guy you'd consider to be a funny guy. Uh, got a few digs in. Uh, and, of course, you expect the Republicans, they didn't like it because he started making fun of them. Uh, but he also talked in a rather serious tone too, which I think was, was absolutely necessary right now. And the one message I, that I took away from that that I think was worthwhile was the number of journalists that are putting themselves on the line and some who have died uh, trying to bring the news. You know, when we have uh, the, the kind of censorship that's going on in Russia and places like that, it's, I think, noteworthy to, to recognize the work and sometimes the risk uh, that reporters take uh, on a consistent basis too. So that, that was good. But I want to just draw the dots here, connect the dots about this, that the polling I saw uh, this morning seems to indicate that, uh, that Biden's approval ratings are ticking upward, not astronomically, but they seem to be moving a little bit away from the, the horrendous numbers that he had last week. It was, certainly wasn't the dinner or his performance at the dinner, Reggie. What, what's what's the, the, the reasoning behind this? Are people getting used to this and maybe thinking uh, that the, the message he's been trying to get out, that the economy is good, just give it time? Are they going to buy that now? Well, I mean, look, the economy is still a problem for uh, for the president, and his approval and handling of the economy is actually doing worse uh, with with only twenty or twenty four percent of the country on board with what the president is doing. But the president's handling uh, of the ongoing COVID crisis, uh, you know, before this masked uh, unmasked event, uh, but but the handling of the COVID crisis, but mostly the president's handling of the story in Ukraine has really helped uh, uh, and benefited uh, himself and. The Democratic Party as a whole, President Biden gaining five points over the last couple of weeks from the month before poll, this one done for uh, Washington Post and ABC, putting him at 42. The issue is it's a 42 percent approval rating and a 52 percent disapproval rating that is tied to inflation, that is tied to the economy. And, and as much as the White House and the president are really trying to drive home, look, there are geopolitical issues around the world that are creating things to cost more. COVID is still playing a factor in all of this. You know, he, he, he's doing what he can. The Fed is doing what it can by raising interest rates. But that's what's dragging the president down right now. And there is a hope that Democrats can try to turn that around before midterms this November. They're seeing, look, we got five points now. Maybe we can edge this up a little bit more. We can potentially stave off, uh, you know, an overwhelming defeat in the House uh, and the Senate. But to see him doing so well in the handling of COVID and of, of Ukraine and on Ukraine, there is strong bipartisan support for what he's doing that can be and will likely be a boost, at least short term, for President Biden. And, and we'll see, of course, if uh, James Carville's ratings are, are, are now famous uh, saying, you know, it's the economy stupid uh, is going to be a factor. It looks like there are some other factors that are uh, ha- having an impact on public opinion. Uh, as always, Reggie, we'll be watching for your reporting on that on Global News, Global National over the next week. Thanks so much for this today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Global News in Washington. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.